Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Oh, hi, everybody. How are you doing? Okay, enough, enough. Enough, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, stop it, everybody. Shut up, ladies and gentlemen. It is another episode of Mormonism Live. This is just a lot of fun. We're doing this every week. We're putting out good stuff. People are having a lot of fun in the in the comments, and uh, things are going fantastic, aren't they? They absolutely are, and we've got Maven down there. Hi, Maven. How are you doing tonight? Hi, everybody. Doing great. How about you guys? Excellent, excellent. Yeah, this somebody a had very... a comment about the Holy Trinity. Uh, it was oh, RFM, Bill, and Maven are the Holy Trinity of Mormonism. I like this. I'm the Father. You're the Holy Ghost, Maven. Of course. You're to testify of nothing but me and Bill. Spectacles, <laughs> testicles, wallet, and keys. <laughs> yep. Bill has got a, such a big show tonight. Really, really yeah. big shoe. Oh, by the way, uh, is there an announcement that you wanted to make before I started introducing your show for you? <laughs> Maven's got something. Maven, go ahead oh. and take it away. Yeah, this is just going to be a really quick update that probably should have happened earlier. But I, first of all, just wanted to express my gratitude to the community for how um, just loving and supportive that you guys have been of me. It's been really great, really validating. Um, I did just want to explain it. There's some questions that keep popping up sometimes. Um, and so I thought maybe it would be a good um, idea to address it now. And so I just wanted to talk about my role on the show. And basically, just uh, I think a lot of people are expecting, especially once I had my interview where I came out and showing my face, and then after last week's episode, um, that I'm going to become an additional host for this show. And I just wanted to point out or just make it clear that that's never been the intention of it. I really love when Bill and RFM are bringing me on, especially with special topics like we did last week. Um, but I really like what I do for the show. I like a lot of the behind the scenes work that I'm doing. And so, um, yeah, so I just wanted to say, I think I'm, I feel like I'm adding value, even if I'm not a host that I, that I don't have to be a host to you know, to be um, contributing to this space. And it always has been, I've said this before, my favorite thing about the show, especially doing the behind the scenes stuff, is to be able to see uh, Bill, especially be able to be more engaged in the show and not have to be worried about running everything in the background. So I, uh, I like to see that. So I did want to say that um, I do appreciate that all of you guys want me to talk more. Um, I feel like I've had a lot of people in my life not want me to talk for, so it's really, really great, and I love it. And I, you know, Bill and RFM have been encouraging me this whole time to start a podcast, and I really want to. I just don't feel quite ready just yet between this show and then my full-time job that I have and other projects. So I, I'm right there with you. I've definitely got a lot of ideas written down. Something might be coming up soon, uh, but for right now, this is where I am comfortable. But I did want to say we do have several other podcasts um, already under Mormon discussions that are led by female voices. 
um, and they aren't getting as much viewers or right now. A lot of them are new. So I think probably you might not have heard of some of them, but there's Dissident Daughters. There's Emancipate Your Mind, which is brand new, just dropped. Um, but there's also Where Will You Go? And uh, Bill co-hosts Almost Awakened with Brittany Hartley. Um, and she's got a, she's she's got a degree, isn't it? A master's, I think, Bill. It's a higher degree you know, in American religion. And so she's got a lot um, that she offers there. And there's more coming down the pipeline. So if you, you know, it doesn't have to be my voice. Um, if you want to support women's voices, that we've definitely got those. And of course, there's other podcasters and um, influencers like Ex Molex, um, Ex Morgan, um, 21st Century Saints. I have to give a call out to them because they're usually here and they've been very supportive of me. So yeah, so I just wanted to... Uh, point that out. And I think that's my, that's my bit there. Oh, one more. I just, one more thing. On and there's also, by the way, she became visible. Oh, um, yes. Sorry. Yeah, I just put that in there. And I no missed it. She, she almost visible. didn't become visible. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that would be terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, if you, if you friend me on Facebook, if I can't clearly tell that you watch this show, I might not be accepting it. Initially I was accepting everything. And then I got some messages that I didn't appreciate. And then I thought I need to be a little bit more discerning. They weren't from our community. They were just like rando accounts. I think because mine was a new account that just were automatically adding. But yeah, at the beginning, because I didn't know, I just thought, well, anybody could be a watcher. So I was accepting everyone. So if you've friend requested me and I haven't answered, just send me a message and tell me you watch the show and then I'll be happy to do that. And then that's it. Love it. And I just want to point out to the two of you guys, there were there were tons of positive comments made last week about how the both of you uh, as well as um, Nicole, Nicole, you know, I, I got that written down here, approached the episode on women in the messaging of the LDS church and how you guys, the viewers and listeners felt we had elevated appropriate voices. And I just wanted you to know that RFM and Maven and our guest, Nicole, worked super hard behind the scenes to ensure that we approached the topic, outlining the show with intention, and it went off exactly the way that we planned uh, as a whole, uh, for the most part, the three of them. And I just want to acknowledge how proud I am of the work that uh, that they did and do. Um, I thought last week's episode was amazing, and a lot of you guys uh, messaged that it was the best episode that uh, we had done yet. So I, I just keep hearing that. Every time we do an episode, people keep going, it's the best episode we've done. And uh, I'm pretty proud of that. And uh, I think the two of you should be as well. And and if uh, one of you guys message Nicole, let her know that, that you know, I think it went off uh, amazingly. Yeah. Um, and I, think it, I think most people understood what we were doing. There was just one comment, I think, that thought maybe I was being interviewer last week and and thought I was over talking or, or talking too much when it, I think everyone else or from what I could see, most people understood it to be a discussion, you know, with the two of us. And that was... Uh, that was her request as well. She was extremely nervous about coming yeah. on the show and very glad that it was going to be both of us. So yeah, it was planned out that way. And so it worked out wonderfully. So great job to both of you and to Nicole. And now on to this week, RFM, what, what are we doing this week? It is mine, but like, go it's ahead. Sure. Introduce well, it. I, this will be I, exciting. I'm so excited about what you've been doing because you've been working very, very hard, burning the midnight oil, putting together this collection, rather massive collection, actually of messy, problematic issues related to Mormonism. Because if I can do your introduction for you, the main thing is uh, frequently we'll go into one subject. Sometimes it's a subject maybe you've heard it before. We'll go deeper, hopefully, than you have before. Or maybe it's a subject you haven't heard it before, and we can explore that. But when we do that, what we're doing is we're able to do a deep dive. And sometimes when we do a deep dive on one subject, it can take away from the fact 
that there are a host of problematic issues related to Mormonism. It's kind of like when you're looking at a picture in a newspaper and you put it up really close to your face and you can't see the picture. All you can see are the individual pixels, right? I think that's what they're called even in a newspaper, a pixel. Yeah. Anyway, uh, but then you have to pull it away and get a little bit of distance. And then all of a sudden, all these little pixels come together to form the image. And what Bill Real is going to be doing tonight is giving a 30,000 foot view of these issues related to Mormonism so that we can get the big picture and see that actually there is not any foundational event in Mormonism that is not problematic. And then there's a host of things that even don't have to be foundational that are problematic as well. Yeah. And I, and I just want to know, you know, I usually use the phrase 20,000 foot view. I think that's the common way I've heard it in at least my, uh, I'll use Terrell Gibbons, the word he uses all the time, the milieu. Um, it's the vernacular that I'm used to. But when I went online and typed up 20,000 foot view, the, the more common phraseology in a Google search is 30,000 foot view. And you pointed out RFM, that may be due to a change in kind of the standard of air flight. Right, because we were originally going to call this episode Nightmare at 20,000 feet. And I was going to go, <gasps> there's someone on the wing, some <laughs> thing. <laughs> And, we'll uh, and anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but somewhere along the way, uh, you know, the 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 organization that reported on President Nelson's flight. What's the name? What's the name of the, <laughs> the what? The FAA? Oh yeah, sure. They they ended up making it so that now the standard is thirty thousand feet. Yeah. So yeah, you so we're going to take a big view. You run into fewer farmers' fields in Delta that way. <laughs> in Delta, the middle of Delta. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> All right. So uh, the way I thought I would do this is. And here's my hope. Often, um, people who have deconstructed Mormonism uh, get confronted by their believing family and friends, and there there isn't a way to explain to that to the loving family and friends who are still in the church just how big of a problem it is. And you can send them to Fair Mormon, or you can send them to Mormon Think, or you can have them read the CES letter, but. I just thought this might be a little different way to do it. And um, we're not going to go into any real detail on any of this. What's so funny, Harapha? You're muted. Uh, it was just flashing by. Someone was saying, great Kirk, RFM, and someone else was saying, great Shatner impression. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was good. I, I And I didn't know of the movie until we talked about it like a week ago. Excuse me. All right. So what I did was I split up what I perceive as the problems and we didn't cover them all. I mean, the Kinderhook plates aren't in here. The Book of Mormon three witnesses aren't in here. There's lots of things that aren't in here. But what I did was I picked out things that I think collectively we would all collectively, again, I'm not going to get everybody because you're not going to get John Gee and you're not going to get Kerry Molstein and you're not going to get, you know, John Lynch from Fair Mormon to agree. But I think if you if you were to talk to a hundred rational human beings and explain these problems, the collective uh, majority would, would deeply believe that the rational conclusion on the issues that we do list are on the side of the critic. And, uh, and if anybody wants to argue with me, they're, they're welcome to come on the show. We've had that invitation multiple times before and nobody really wants to do that. So we split up all of the problems in the church into, I think 12 or 13 different categories and the first one here is scriptural issues. 
And I'll just list them. And then RFM, if you want to get the second slide and read them, and then Maven, if you want to do the third slide. Yeah, and, and Okay, cool. And I see you guys laughing. I don't know if it's just the comments. I'm trying to ignore those so I can Sorry, yeah. I no, we're, we're both laughing up. at you, Bill. Well, I'm, I'm laughing at the comment that I put up from Brother Wilcox. Maybe we ought not ask what we see from 30,000 feet. Maybe we ought to ask how the hell we got up this high. I love it. Okay. So scriptural issues, Book of Mormon anachronisms, the presence of steel, horses, chariots, and wheels. By the way, there's also things that should be in there that aren't. The crops that the Nephites and the Jaredites brought with them that they said flourished when they landed. There is no sign of any crops that were um, that were at home in Jerusalem and came here, and and now we ha you know we have them in our site that they would date to that time. So there are also things that should be present that aren't. The inspired plagiarized uh, the inspired Bible plagiarized from Adam Clark's commentary, the Book of Abraham. The papyri doesn't match the translation. How the theology and canon changed over time. In other words, Book of Mormon starts off with the first edition posing certain kinds of theological uh, perspectives. As time goes on, Joseph Smith theology changes, and so does the Book of Mormon. Um, Book of Mormon 19th century material. Uh, I forget what... Uh, on the 19th century material, can I just add in there please. that I think it was, was it Bushman who noted that the theology of the Book of Mormon is 19th century Methodism? Yeah, and I remember Brian Whitney working at the church history department and going through sermons of ministers in Joseph Smith's day, and he was amazed at the overlap of topics being talked about and exact phraseology that was present in some of those sermons. Sermons um, from his Melu. Yeah, yeah. Book of Mormon, plagiarism from the New Testament and Apocrypha. Uh, we have lots of that going on as well. And then good old second and third Isaiah, those seem to be a little bit of a hindrance uh, for the Book of Mormon as well. Any general thoughts about scriptural issues or anything here before we go to slide number two? I was interested in your comment about uh, plagiarism from the Apocrypha. Were you thinking about maybe Nephi or something else? Uh, one example is the book of Judith. And the book of Judith has the exact same uh, story um, facets that the beheading of Laban has, that whole story. And so if you go back and read the book of Judith, it appears as though both stories are running along the same outline. Ah, very uh, good. Just okay. And there's more of those too. And, and I hope to do an episode on that at some point. So we'll go into detail about those similarities, that overlap. I wanted to jump in real Please. quick on anachronisms. Um, uh, I feel like a lot of members of the church, and, and this was me as well, uh, used to see it as like, you know, a grain of wheat that's really tiny um, or one sword. You know, we haven't dug up all of North and South America. So it could be somewhere, a chariot or a sword or some wheat. But when, uh, when you know what, the background is of what it will take for these things to have existed. The amount, I guess the area becomes much, much larger. So I, I feel like we're pretty safely at a point where we can know without digging up all of North and South America, that these things will not be found because it's impossible that the structures that would have, you know, held up with them, uh, they would have been found by this point. Yeah, and it's not even just the fact that we don't find a sword. It's the metallurgy involved in making right. a sword. Like, the problems are far and wide in breadth and, breadth and scope, and um, it really isn't just a matter of going, we never found a sword. And, and then you also have to recognize that 
whoever's making the fantastic claim, they're the ones that have to provide evidence that that claim is actually there. It isn't my job when all of the experts agree that there aren't swords, there isn't this type of metallurgy, there aren't these kinds of things happening. We've got battles of millions of people and there's zero evidence of them having ever fought anywhere. And um, it's not my job to make allowances and conjecture to give them space that maybe it's true and maybe we'll find it in the future. The, the argument is in the critic's favor and it is the apologist or the church job to provide evidence for the incredible claims that they're making. Um, so there. Slide number two here. So the next one was spiritual manifestation issues. Early in the church, we've got Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery saying it was Nephi that met with uh, with Joseph Smith and not Moroni. We've got the first vision discrepancies. We've got Peter, James, and John's priesthood restoration added to the story late. David Whitmer tells us that. We've got this crazy story of this tall skeleton elf. We've got Moroni going all the way out to bless Manti. Um, and then bearing the plates. Uh, we've got problems with the Brigham Young transfiguration. And there are a host of others too, but this gives you at least a glimpse at this overall category that anytime the church claims that some spiritual manifestation is taking place, there are deep problems with these stories that they're telling. Uh, any thoughts on this one? Just that when you say uh, Moroni blessing Manti, that's where uh, the story about his traveling out to the location where Manti is today and dedicating the ground for the temple. Yeah, you either have him um, doing it as a resurrected being while the Smith family's moving all over the place. And so how does Moroni know where Joseph Smith's going to end up as crops are failing here and he's moving there? Or you have Moroni as just a human being at the end of his life going all the way out to Manti and blessing it. And whichever story you take, the, the ground, and again, this isn't necessarily a spirit, but if Moroni goes out to Manti to bless the air, the temple site, then goes and buries the plates, just the idea of the terrain he would cover, the different environments, the different uh, landscape, uh, the different um, climates that he would go through, and to be all by yourself doing that, it's absurd. It's a incredible claim that there is no evidence for other than Fair Mormon would tell you that there's one guy in the history of humankind who traveled a similar distance. And that shouldn't be enough to have me lean on that side and say, this is how it happened. Yeah. Not to mention the vast herds of bison. Yeah. Yeah. The bison were there at the time, huh? They're, they're not around as much anymore. huh? Yeah. When he makes a right at Manti to head for New York, that's going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Next one, Joseph Smith's character. Um, so we've got Joseph Smith lying about polygamy to Emma and to the general public and to others. We've got him manipulating Lucy Walker. We've got a pattern of him approaching girls or young women in his home for intimate relationships. Lucy Walker, Fanny Alger, Partridge sisters, Lawrence sisters. We've got him doing polyandry. So he's, he's having intimate relationships with women who are already married to other men. Can I just jump in here for a second? Please. I hate this term. I don't hate it. I dislike the term polyandry because really what it is, is adultery. <laughs> you know, it is. Yes. Polyandry sounds so sophisticated. And I think that, by the way, I bet that uh, Maven would be able to help answer this question. I think polyandry is generally used in a system where a woman has multiple male partners or husbands. And it's actually a system that gives the power to the women. Where is that true, Maven? I am not an expert on this, so I can't say for sure, but I, I know that I hear things 
like I've heard that before. And so it's something that I'm, I'm also like, whenever I hear it, I'm unsure of if I actually know if, if, if this is the right word being used, first of all. Um, so yeah, I, I can't say, I'm sorry, Arifem. That's okay. Um, I think I'm probably sure have some commenters who do know though. Okay. I think polyandry is a technical term that can technically apply, but it seems to be kind of highfalutin for good old fashioned adultery. Yeah. And, and you have to keep in mind if in any of these relationships, the other man isn't aware and doesn't, doesn't, it's not a mutually consensual thing among all the parties involved with full disclosure and full awareness of what's going on, then you're right, RFM, it is absolutely adultery. Yeah, it's not the woman initiating this. It's more than one man, though, because I, I, I think that's where the Andre comes in. It is. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, my sticking on it is it, okay. it's not the okay. woman initiating the it. Andre is about the women that were married who already had husbands that Joseph uh, was marrying. Just those. I think that's all that we're referring to here. Well, right. But again, yes. Yeah. Like you said, it's not originating from her. No. And again, just like Orson Hyde's instance, right? Isn't Orson the one that goes over to Jerusalem to bless it? Orson yes. Pratt, maybe. Orson Hyde. Yeah. And so the relationship is unbeknownst to him. Mm -hmm. And so if one party doesn't know it's an affair, it's, it's adultery, it's religious coercion, if that's what's present there as well. Uh, Nancy Rigdon in the happiness letter, incredible episode where I interviewed, um, oh my goodness, I'm going to forget his name, but Jonathan I know it's Jonathan Streeter, Streeter but the, I'm trying to think of the other gentleman. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll have to remember it before the end of the show and say something, but we did a fantastic episode on that, covered it in huge detail. Then Streeter took that audio, put it up on YouTube and put all the historical documents with it. And once you know that story, the fact that LDS leaders have used the happiness letter in theological and conference talks, uh, theological statements and in conference talks, it becomes insane that they actually stuck with it and used it. Uh, underage girls, two 14-year-olds, two 16-year-olds, two 17-year-olds, uh, Joseph Smith's treasure digging, which again, the most reasonable conclusion because there was no Spanish silver mines. There was no buried treasure. Joseph Smith claims there was, and he's taking money to dig it up and there isn't anything. It is a, it's a scam. And, and any other view that Joseph is also naive and just going along through the motions is taking to me the less reasonable, rational view uh, around that particular issue. Uh, Kirtland Safety Society Bank, land issues and bad loans. And, and I'm obviously reading a bunch of these. So RFM, jump in, have you read one and then maybe I'll have you take the next one. Oh, that one thing that you had on the previous slide reminded me of a, a really bad joke. Why does Michael Jackson like 28-year-olds? Because there's 20 of them. Wah, wah, wah. Too, so too soon? <laughs> yes. Anyway, so am I supposed to read this now after? Okay. <laughs> Science and critical thinking. Yeah. Okay, we've got the Great Flood, of course, referenced in the Book of the Mormon, is it? Book of Mormon, yeah. Tower of Babel definitely is there in the Book of Ether. Shiz, an unfortunately named Book of Mormon character, rises after his head was cut off. Yeah, up on his arms, right? And breathes his last, I think is the expression. 2,000 stripling warriors. You really like this story, don't you, Bill? It comes up frequently. To me, it is. It's the one that our brain, your brain, Maven's brain, my brain, they should have been on 15 years ago. And we all should have said 2,000 kids fighting in a war against a, a larger, more experienced army. And some of them get 
hurt so bad that they faint from blood loss. That's true. And there's not a single single one dies. And nobody gets a staph or gangrene. Nobody gets infection and dies a week later. Like, the, these guys all make it. It just seems like a strange story. I don't... That's why it's a miracle, Bill. I really believed in the miracle, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So 2000 Stripling Warriors. By the way, do you know what Stripling means, Bill? I, I'm gonna, I'm buff, maybe. I don't Raven. know. That's always what I thought. It means young. Young. Yeah, Stripling is a word for young. We just don't use it much anymore. These are just Morrison. kids. They're just babies, you know? Yeah. 2000 Stripling Warriors in a battle with a more experienced, larger military force, and not a single soul was lost, not to the battle, not to infection afterward, in spite of many fainting from blood loss. I How bad do you have that. to be hurt to faint from blood loss? I think you have to practically exsanguinate. And and if that's the case, if that's how bad your injury is, back in this time, there should be some infections, right? There should be somebody dying from not being able – you can't fix all these wounds. You can't just put some salve on it and slap a leaf on top and call it a day, right? Like, Penicillin. Right. By the way, Maven, did you see the uh, definition of polyandry that went up there? I did. Did I not have it up long enough? I, uh, I saw it briefly. It looks like yeah. it is technically when a woman takes right. two or more husbands. And yeah. that's my quibble with using polyandry right. in this context. It stands for sure. Okay. So continuing with science and critical thinking problems, battles in the millions with zero evidence at all that they occurred. Oh, Moroni. The previous section had brought up that the Nephite army was larger than the entire Roman legion. And not a trace. Not a trace. Not a yeah. trace. Even though we know where it happened, right? Well, we used to. <laughs> now, now, there's, now there's three or four places we should be looking. Oh, my gosh. Uh, that was back when the church used to know where it took place before they decided they don't know where it took place. Hat okay. Tip to F. Michael Watson. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, now you say Moroni blessing Manti again. So this yep. comes under this category as well. Yeah, there is overlap. Logistical issues with Nephi's transoceanic voyage. And when you talk about issues, it that single story, once you look at it and break it down, I know John Larson did an epic uh, podcast over at Mormon Expressions back when that was going. And I understand they have the full uh, catalog of it now that's being made available at Mormon Stories. So that's not lost forever and it can be found again. But that was just that one story just blows everything up. It's a great example of where just just how large of an area and the resources involved in some of these stories that the same, you know, archaeological problems have. Yeah, it turns out the Pacific Ocean is kind of big and hard to cross. So logistical Nephi's transoceanic voyage, Lamanite DNA. Where is it? Who's Lamanite? Do we even know who the Lamanites are anymore? We don't have a clue. Yeah, we don't we don't have a clue because the church admits it's not out there and they have reasons for why it may have vanished. But the moment you're looking in hindsight and saying, I, I know it was back there, but I don't see it today, then you don't have a freaking clue who had it. It's a good thing they're not very important in Mormonism to know their identity. It's not like the Book of Mormon was written to the Lamanites or anything. <laughs> and we don't even know who to give the book to anymore. I know. It's kind of embarrassing. And finally, on this uh, list, age of the earth and evolution. Yeah. So there's that. Um, Can I say one? It's just a random office. It's not really related, but about shiz. I had a really interesting car in high school. You know, one of those high school cars. And, the shiz mobile. Um, yeah. Well, it 
Um, so it was a manual. And uh, when I would park it and turn it off, like when I went home, I would pull the key out. Like after it would turn off, I would pull the key out and I would be walking to my door and it would like sputter back to life before like actually finally dying. It did it all the time. And I named that car Chiz for that reason, precisely because of the, the Book of Mormon scripture. Um, when I was still in the church, I did an episode on Shiz for Mormon discussion. And I brought in the story of Mike the Headless Chicken. Have you ever heard of Mike the Headless Chicken? Yes, I remember that episode. <laughs> so there's a chicken. The guy has the chicken and uh, he's he's going to cook it. And he cuts off the head and the thing just keeps running around. Right. And it, it was like 98% of its brain got cut off, but there was a little bit of its like brainstem that was left behind. And so this chicken would still um, do all the things it was supposed to do other than it had no head. And so this thing was famous. He took it around to county fairs and um, ended up, the chicken ended up choking on some type of debris. And so his, yeah, his choked his chicken, I think so. But uh, yeah, it was I'm sorry, what? Yeah. What did you say, Bill? The, the chicken choked. It, it just, you know, choked. The chicken choked. I'm just going to move on here. <laughs> okay. Well, I want to give Maven credit for telling that story. In that brief story, she managed to work in Chiz, Manual, and Turnoff. <laughs> so this chicken just dies after he's famous, but there's pictures of him still online if you Google Mike the Headless Chicken. So just like your car, Maven, sometimes things come back to life or, or they keep living when they shouldn't. So just one last sputter. It's possible, right? It's possible that shiz is a real story other than it's highly unlikely. You have to make allowances. You have to create conjecture. It becomes the way less rational conclusion to draw. All right, let's jump to the next one. Maven, you want to take this one? I can. I am getting a little bit behind in comments if you want to take over. Okay, I'll do it. Okay, uh, administration. We have second anointings. Of course, the hundreds of billions of dollars saved in investments that are not helping anyone. And I also want to add in the land that they own. Uh, nepotism. Um, Nemo did an episode where he pointed a lot of that out. The leaders are insulated and promote yes men. The leaders are well paid. And of course, our beloved strength, strengthening. What is that? I'm like blinking now. The SEMC Strengthening Church Members Committee. Nailed there it. We go. All right. Past prophetic deception. So I tried to go back, like in, in my head, I consider like there's a modern moment, you know, Bruce R. McConkie and that kind of group forward. And then if we go back to the early church, there's this kind of past deception that was going on. Uh, Adam God doctrine, racial curses, racial valiancy. Even recently with the B1 celebration, by the way, Elder Oaks commentary makes it crystal clear that the church still holds the position that the ban itself was from God even though the reasoning we gave for it, uh, we have now disavowed. The church doesn't want to take that next step because what it means is that prophets, seers, and revelators, all 15 men at the top, generation after generation after generation, had, had no ability. They were inept at discerning the mind and will of God and figuring out that they had messed up. So they try to hold this middle ground where they don't really want to talk about it. They're not really going to answer questions. And it's kind of just left out there. Uh, and it pokes its head up every once in a while that we still believe the ban came from God, but the reasoning for it has been disavowed. Um, Joseph Smith's uh, mock wedding with the Partridge sisters. Lori again, and Tracy. Treasured, what's that? Lori and Tracy. 
Yeah, Laurie and Tracy. Uh, Emily and... Uh, Emma? Well, Emma was the wife of Josie who got lied to about it, but who are the two Partridge sisters? Emily's one of them. And Eliza. Eliza, sorry. You thought you said Emma. I did. Okay, Eliza and Emily. Uh, you've got Treasure Digging again, Mountain Meadows Massacre. Uh, Brigham Young continued to blame the indigenous people even after he knew it was his own people that did it. And then his destruction of the monument, I just can't, I can't even grasp the, the uh, unhealthiness inside of somebody to do that. That was, that to me is an atrocious moment that gets very little talked about uh, in Mormon history. Um, the 1890 manifesto, the 1904 manifesto, the John W. Taylor trial, the 1933 lie, you know, about the 1886 revelation, that whole mess is full of deception. The excising and hiding away of damaging information and items, 1832 First Vision account, the Seer Stone, Clayton Diaries, Council of 50 Minutes, and there are things still missing. Um, you pointed out the leaves that were in that 1832 personal journal of Joseph Smith, the letter book, uh, where there's other leaves that are still missing. We talked before about, um, oh man, I'm going to try to remember this. It's the father and the son and not Jesus and Heavenly Father, but the Father and the Son, early members of the church, and we still have the early section of his journal missing where you and I talked about it being a, a fifth first vision account. Joseph um, Knight. Yeah, Joseph Knight and Newell Knight, yeah. So there's that. Um, and then the rewriting of history, obscuring how Brigham Young actually came to power. You did a beautiful series early on in your podcast, Radio uh, Free Mormon, where you talked about the apostolic coup d'etat. And that those episodes, I've listened to those a few times just to try to get a real good hold on that early history. Brigham Young was not the rightful heir when Joseph Smith died. And yet, somehow, some way, through a lot of behind-the-scenes finagling, he became the next prophet, seer, and revelator. Yes, he was a <clears throat> political genius. Yes. And somewhat um, ruthless, too, I think. And, and in some ways, too, Joseph Smith spent his entire time trying to accumulate wealth. And seemed, it seemed to kind of evade him for the most part. And, and even when he had it, he really wasn't able to enjoy it. And Brigham Young really did succeed there. He gets out West and he truly does become a millionaire and he's got tons of property. Um, somebody pointed out the 2015 policy and reversal isn't on there. I don't have it in the modern one, which is actually where I would have put it, uh, but it's not on there either. So thank you for bringing that up. And um, Google also uh, brought up Joseph Smith uh, constantly denying that he had these other wives. Yeah, the lying about polygamy. Um, modern, <laughs> what's that? that? I think the most famous line is that uh, that he's being accused of having all these wives when he can only find one. Yeah, and they're all right there in the crowd, aren't they? What a thing it is. That's like the release of having seven wives when I can find only one. There's that picture of the Relief Society meeting where Joseph's at the front talking to all these women. And the deception there with, Emma is surrounded by the plural wives of Joseph Smith. She's trying to stomp out polygamy. These women are the people that she gets comfort from and, and console her. And she little does she know that these are actually the wives of, of her husband, his, his other, um, his other plural wives, essentially. And, and which makes sense when you understand that she was the 22nd or 23rd woman sealed to him. Um, yeah, all right. Emma wasn't the last to know. She was the 23rd to know. Yeah, she wasn't last to know. Yeah, she wasn't last person to the party. Um, modern prophetic 
deception. And again, I should have put up here the 2015 policy, putting it in place and then removing it. Do one of you two want to read through this list? I vote for Maven. Okay. All right. Elder Holland with the BBC interview, the story about the missionary meeting his brother, double digit state creation. Um, Every week of our lives. Was that how far it was? I thought it was like for the month of April that he had said that, but no, yeah, whatever. Masa, you don't remember that? <laughs> that particular story has a special place in Bill Reel's heart. Yes. Liar, liar, pants on fire. We are creating double digit stakes, Masa Menos, every week of our lives. Every week of our lives. Yeah. Um, someone I just saw in the comments uh, talked about the salamander letter, which also would a uh, good one. So we have Apostle Paul Dunn, um, all the stories he told that were lies, which he was pretty prolific with lots of books and things like that. Um, President Nelson, Flight of Death, the Zimbabwe kidnapping, the lady in the hat, Bruce R. McConkie lying about Brigham teaching Adam God, Elder Oaks lying about electroshock therapy at BYU under his presidency. There's the whitewashing and carefully worded denials of the gospel topic essays. September 6th and the dishonesty surrounding who initiated um, the disciplinary court. You can't stage manage a grizzly bear. It is yeah. hard to stage manage a grizzly bear, isn't it? <laughs> I love in the interview with, with Kwaku when you brought that up and and it was obvious he had no idea. What Did you I were, say that? You, you brought up, yeah, you said you brought up that line somewhere in there and he well, had no idea you. what you were talking about. I have not gone back and watched that at all. <laughs> It was a while ago. Anyway, uh, moving on, there was hiding documents and information during the Mark Hoffman episode. So I guess that's where the Salamander letter would come in. It's there. And yeah. Um, and then let's see, lost my place. Here we go. The constant admittance of obfuscating the church's faith damaging history, uh, like talks with the mantle is far, far greater than the intellect and ousting Leonard Arrington. There's Ronald Pullman and the redo of his conference talk, including coughs in the background. October 1984. And then Quinton Cook and the, I don't know how to pronounce if it's Marin Hospital. Marin Hospital. Mm -hmm. Marin Hospital. Um, no, it was Marin. Marin. Maybe okay. it is. He stole a hospital. Um, and then uh, Tom Monson Jr. <laughs> he stole a hospital. Does it say he stole a hospital on here? That's, that's what I've heard it like being described as. <laughs> Allegedly. I like it. Allegedly. Yeah. Um, and speaking of allegedly and using lawyer talk here. Yeah. We have Tom Monson Jr. who was a lawyer and there was um, Kurt Buffel and now he's employed at Curtin McConkie, which is possibly the only place that will employ him anymore. Gordon B. Hinckley. I don't know that we teach it. I don't know that we emphasize it. That was talking about um, planets, right? Heavenly. Brother Joseph Smith taught that God was once a man. Oh, is that? Okay. There we go. So the whole then, point, the whole thing of us not getting our planet anymore is because right. we may not become like God anymore because he may not have been like us prior. And so now the whole thing that Mormonism absolutely hinges on in the very beginning is, is gone. <laughs> not <laughs> no only planet. That, I think it was the conference after that he did kind of give like a, a wink wink to the audience. I, I trust know. me, I know what I'm talking about. Exactly. Um, last I thing don't about, care if we emphasize it. I just want my planet. Dodge yeah. <laughs> mod. I want my monkey man. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. So sorry. the last one is obfuscating and whitewashing history at every turn in the curriculum, even at present with saints and the gospel topic essays. And I want to add general conference too. Um, like when Elder Cook talked about how nice we've always been to the Native Americans mm. and yeah. just how unracist we are. Yeah. 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 <laughs> if you have to tell people how unracist you are, you're probably a racist, right? 
Yes. And Elder Cook saying, if you don't think we're racist, just let me uh, introduce my friend, Brad Wilcox. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Modern prophetic deception. Now we're on to false or misused faith promoting stories. We've got the seagulls and the crickets. Um, you know, seagulls have been eating crickets since the beginning of time. Mm, um, Sweetwater Crossing, which we remember that story with these 18 year olds and their salvation was guaranteed and they weren't 18 and they didn't die in that in that crossing. And there were lots of people who helped people across the water and they went and tracked all these people down later and they were all doing pretty well. They, they None of them really died young. And I think the earliest somebody died was like 50 years old. Um, Holland Nelson uh, yarn stretchers, Brigham Young transfiguration. Oh, he's here to defend himself uh, right now, so I put up his comment. I was not he's lying. Not lying. Well, what were what were you doing, Jeffrey? <laughs> Is that a yarn stretcher or taffy puller? Um, it, it can be both. You can implement either one of those. Okay. Uh, Holland and Nelson uh, yarn stretchers. All the faith promoting stories that they've tried to tell. At least most of Holland's involve. Uh, Somebody else, Nelson likes to talk about himself doing these miraculous things. Brigham Young Transfiguration. You did the episode on Whale of a Tale when the 70 told that story. And, oh, man, that's a good one. Go back and listen to that episode of Radio Free Mormon. You want to hear the song know. again, don't you? Um, it's it's not a whale of a tale to tell right you yes. What? I said it's going through my mind right now. Sing it with me, Maven. A, tale of, a whale of a tale or two about the flapping fish and the girls I've loved on nights like this with the moon above. A whale of a tail, and it's all true, I swear, by my tattoo. Oops, sorry. I, I uh, Wilford Woodruff in the Founding Fathers Temple work. Remember, he was uh, he got a vision, and he went to do their temple work, except that all their work had already been done before that. So that didn't quite make a lot of sense, did it? Well, that's why they were so clamoring for him and Vision to do their work. All the Founding Fathers and all the presidents, except for one. Yeah. Got to get that say, guy. I know this isn't a faith-promoting story, and it's almost never talked about. Um, as far as I know, it's true. So maybe someone can correct me if not. But isn't Wilford Woodruff the one who, for his birthday, uh, got a lot of names of deceased single women um, of all ages, from infants to adults, and sealed himself to them so he would have all these wives in the afterlife? Well, I don't know this story. All I got was a lousy T-shirt. Yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to look it out. I'll, I'll have to find my source. So as of right now, I cannot positively say what the source is. So I guess we can say take it with a grain of salt. But yeah, at the very least, if that story is true, it at least points to some sort of literal belief, right? Like whoever did that believed they would have those women in the afterlife. So at least they had that going for them. But man, that sounds atrocious. That again, women are treated as objects. It doesn't matter what these women think. It doesn't matter what their say is. If they don't, you know, obviously they don't care what priesthood holder they get. Well, I'm guessing they all do, but they we never care to ask. actually super lucky that even though they died as an infant, they ended up with a prophet anyway. Maybe yeah. that's isn't that sweet. They're very privileged. I don't know. You want yeah. to hook your wagon, you want to hook yourself to a celestial wagon. Bless his heart. All right. Lorenzo Snow's Jesus visitation that comes way late, it comes third hand where the daughter, I think, had already passed away. And then um, somebody she knew, I forget what the person's name was, but somebody she knew came forward with the story, but there was no way to check it because it was late and third hand. All right, trauma placed on members. Uh, do one of you two want to read that one? I can. Can I just say Please. a couple of things for those in the audience 
who, uh, who may be concerned about details, I believe that the amount of money that the church has in the EPA is uh, conservatively estimated at around $150 billion now. So I only say that because you had said the, the list that said hundreds of billions. I don't want to put anybody off if um, they're thinking it's $150 billion, uh, which is still quite a chunk of change. Um, the other thing is that I think it's not the salamander letter that got hidden. I think it was the other letter, the treasure digging letter. That's the mm. one that Gordon B. Hinckley wrote a check out to Mark Hoffman sitting across his desk, gave him the check. Gordon B. Hinckley takes the letter. It goes into his desk. And there, that's where it sits until for like a year until Mark Hoffman himself finally had to prod the media, the Los Angeles Times, I think, with a copy of the same letter to do a story about it. Okay, so anyway, is there another thing that I was supposed to read? Did you want to say no, no, something, no, here, Bill? No, we lost Maven, and with Maven, we lost all of our, our slides. So I'm going to try to put them up here really quick in case something is uh, – that's not going to work. Give me a second. Mm. Okay. And uh, we will promise it'll it'll be back up here at some point. Um, One of the funny things is, is that you have got a list that is so long. It was four pages when I printed it off, Bill. And yet we have all these listeners who are bringing up other things uh, that are not on the list. Some were, but some are not. And it's like uh, we have a list that you and I thought was exhaustive, but it's not. There's still other things that can go on. Oh, this yeah. Very there's, lengthy list. There's, there's like, tons there's no of end. stuff. There's no end to it. Um, Let me get to the. OK, I think this is the one we were on. Yeah, it's like on Friends when they're trying to name all 50 states. Hopefully Maven's okay wherever she wherever she went. So Oh, okay. I think well, her computer just shut off or something. All right. Well, hopefully she'll get back in here any second. Trauma placed on members. The temple. Sexism. Objectifying women. Penalties. I did the penalties. Did you do the penalties, Bill? No, you missed just that. Thumb, thumb fully extended and hand in cupping shape, you know? But yeah, no, I didn't, the... I didn't know what they were connected to at the time. Yes. Uh, that was the best part of the endowment, I thought. They took out the best part of the movie, huh? The best part of the show. Well, they did. There was a little excitement, a little violence. One-on-one, because that's a pretty boring presentation. It needs something to spice it up. I'm thinking if they had a concession stand out front with popcorn, maybe some drinks or something for those who go into the endowment movie. One-on-one -on -one interviews with children by an untrained clergy. This is under the heading trauma placed on members. Worthiness interviews. Toxic perfectionism, which sometimes the church, like Elder Holland, will say the church doesn't do while continuing to do it. Patriarchy, marginalizing women, people of color, indigenous people, taking heritage away from indigenous people, Lamanite renaming, Indian placement program. When you say Lamanite renaming, what do you here's, mean by that, Bill? Yeah, here's what I mean. So somebody who is uh, a member of a Native American tribe, they have a certain heritage. They, they grow up learning that heritage. And then the church comes in and it gives them a false heritage. It says, hey, you're these people out of this book. And it encourages people to, in a sense, drop the, the label that they were actually born with. And it assigns a new label to them that's based on a, a, a fictional book. And, and so their identity, their heritage, their, it gets corrupted and it gets diminished. And by calling someone a Lamanite when they're actually a Cherokee or a Navajo, um, you're doing a deep injustice to those people. Uh, and, and we ought to be clear about that. Okay. Thank you. 
Uh, next is diminishing those who lose faith with labels such as chaff, lazy, lazy learner, or sinful. Uh, next is not having a single good story about those who leave, such as Thomas B. Marsh, Simon's Rider, Emma Smith, uh, I almost said John, but David Whitmer, William Marks, yeah, and Law. Um, William Law. William Law, etc. Yeah. Gaslighting people continuously regarding their history. All the harm with polygamy, and that itself is multiple episodes, claiming tithing will get you out of poverty. Yeah, what Nelson did with the African saints, which just simply, I don't care how real the church is and how true the Holy Ghost is, that's just not happening. And not just and, themselves, but the entire nation. Yeah, not just the members, but the entire nation of Africa, if, if the members would just pay tithing. That's absurd. And we could test that, right? We could take 100 African saints have them pay tithing, and then uh, experiment to see if they get further out of poverty or if they find themselves deeper into a hole. And I'm pretty safe to say I'd like to put a million dollars on that wager. Yes. By the way, today's date is March 2nd, 2022. There's an invasion of, the, of Ukraine going on by Russia and has been for a week now. And I'm glad that the LDS Church has called for a worldwide fast to help things out over there for the Ukrainians. You'd heard about that, right, Bill? Yeah, and um, I'm trying to think offhand what, well, Maven, you're back. I am back, yeah. Apparently, in the whole neighborhood, the power just blinked off and then right back on for everybody. But, of course, it takes forever for the internet to reconnect and all that. Sorry yeah. about that. That's all right. We lost your slideshow. I put my copy up, but I'm just doing a screen share, um, just FYI. Okay. Um, the Ukraine thing is interesting. Um, I don't know what to add to it. I'm... I'm a little nervous. I think we all are kind of watching all this unfold. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know the connection to the church, but yeah, I, I'm certainly aware of it and watching the news. I kind of um, I kind of a little OCD in these kinds of things. So when this kind of stuff happens, I just sit and watch uh, live news for hours on end trying to know everything about what's going on. And sometimes it can be a little depressing. Right. And I know we don't want to get political on this show. By the way, I love your background, Maven. The thing I was bringing up was the fact that the church with $150 billion in the bank, conservatively estimated, wants to call for a worldwide day of fasting and prayer for people who are being invaded by a hostile power instead of like doing something constructive. And by the way, you had mentioned, I think, Bill, uh, wondering if they were going to be asking the members to pay fast offerings. Won't members pay it anyway? Like if you're a member and you do a fast, don't aren't you trained to give that money, those two meals to the church? Yes, absolutely. So is that going to be this Sunday that they're going to do this on fast Sunday? I don't know, but if they do a fast for this Ukraine invasion and then take that money given in fast offerings and put it in their coffer, that seems egregiously unethical. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyway, I just 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 noticing something. Huh? Where are yeah, we really. at this slide since I popped in late? Are we at the end of it? Yeah, she's at the, at the end of this one. So if you want to put yours back up, you can do that. This I can take I, mine down once you do. I would have to pull it up. Yeah, um, I can do it. But I did want to talk about the poverty because there was a point in my life where like this affected me personally. I was uh, really really struggling, but I really held on to that idea. You know, the old I can't afford not to pay tithing, I really felt, even though as I, I felt 
like I was drowning in, you know, some days. Um, and really, it was really, it's really depressing <laughs> when things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. But I kept feeling like if I don't pay my tithing, they're going to be worse than they are. So, of course, it wasn't until after that I, I got new jobs, I got raises, like everything got better. And I just feel so sad <laughs> that that I was still doing that. Anyway, yeah. that was my two pieces there. Yeah. You know, I had a recent experience. It's very quick. Um, I happened to find some money that I had like squirreled away and forgotten where it was. And I stumbled upon it and I said, oh my gosh, free money. I must have put this in here and forgotten where it was. And then the thought occurred to me, if I were still an active and observant Latter-day Saint, I would think that was a blessing for paying tithing. And then the second thought crossed my mind. Well, I'm not paying tithing. So what do I make of this? Yeah. Right. You know, what, and there's other like Christians, you know, not Mormons who will share the same kind of stories. So it does kind of almost seem like it doesn't matter if it goes to the church or not. Right. Yeah. Can I tell the audience one other thing, Bill? I apologize. I know this is a very long thing to get through and you're doing your best in spite of my obstructions. But the thing about Maven for last week's show which we did on women's roles in the church. Maven did all this research over the weekend before the show, going out and getting these books that she showed during the course of the show and reading through them and doing massive amounts of research. The thing I did not mention last week because I was busy trying to hold my tongue is that at the time, Maven did not know what the subject of the show was going to be. She was moved upon for whatever reason to go out and get a host of books and researched them, and then it turned out that that was exactly what the show was going to be on, which he didn't find out until the Monday before the show. So I want everyone to know that the Holy Ghost is hard at work for Mormonism Live. Yes. I made that joke to Nicole when we were talking before. Yeah, I was trying to find, just, just, yeah, again, I just, I wanted to find the proof <laughs> sheer amount of stuff that um yeah that we were told as far as our roles were yeah it was perfect yeah Worked i guess out good probably i'll go back to church actually i think that's what that means doesn't it no it means more minutes and live is true there we go <clears throat> it's yeah it's as true as some other things yeah true. all right so maybe it may might be there's certainly more honesty and transparency that's for hell sure we're the truest our all right, so now we move on to social issues. Maven, you're not back. a competition. Do you want to do you want to read these ones? Yes. Um, first one, obviously, <laughs> women have lesser place in mortality and in heaven. The church maintains that God did actually sort people via their skin color. The church imposes significant harm on LGBT members. The <clears throat> civil rights was communism. It fought against that. They are not proactive, uh, but they are reactive on sexual abuse. And I have a clip for that. Bill, is this where you wanted me to pull in the clip? You're muted. Yeah, let's go ahead and show it. Okay. So this is actually from um, a Mormon Stories episode that was about, it was all about a ward where a bishop was molesting the children and he has been convicted and he is in prison now for that. And uh, the whole thing is just about how the church tried to basically tamp that down. Um, 
until, you know, these guys that I'm going to show here just kept insisting that other members of the ward should be told about it, um, especially those with kids, so that they could talk to their kids and see if potentially there were more victims. But the church leadership wasn't interested in that. This clip is about a meeting um, that this couple had, you know, after this whole fiasco with the stake president. And this is specifically this is what the stake president said about the uh, calling of the bishop who did these things. I'm going to go ahead and put it up now. Bishop, yes. <laughs> and he told me um, that he wanted to testify that the Lord had called this bishop and that sometimes the Lord works in mysterious ways. That is it. Yeah. So when, uh, when again, it goes back to Elder Iring when he says the Lord doesn't make any mistakes in these calls. And so when a leader isn't a good human being and they commit some deep trauma and abuse on the members of the wards, we have to somehow accept that that's the way God works. Right. And usually, and I, I watch this, I think that's the reddishes. Yes. Who are, who are speaking there and uh, kudos to them uh, very much. So I just got done watching that the other day. Um, but frequently uh, if a, church leader is called to be a leadership position and then behaves inappropriately and maybe like Elder Hamula and has to be excommunicated, then frequently the the apologetic, the apologetic is, well, uh, they have their free agency, right? And it doesn't affect the discernment of the leaders who call that person to that position because the person called still has their free agency. The real wrinkle with this is that this person who was called to be a bishop had been doing this before he was called to be the bishop back when he was a young men's leader. And so that apologetic goes out the window. And now the discernment of the leaders is really on the line in this. And in this case, that particular state president. Yeah. Quentin Cook's in the Quorum of the Twelve too, right? Yes. Why? Oh, okay. Same, same philosophy. Oh, Anyway, all right, so continue. Yeah, um, always 30 to 40 years late on almost every social issue in spite of being led by prophets, seers, and revelators. Then there's global and government influence uh, defeating the ERA, Prop 8, um, the LDS senator who voted for the Iraqi war, and the quote was, where boots go, missionaries follow. Um, there are two LDS men, a part of the U.S.'s government torture program, and I, one was serving as a bishop, I believe, at the time, until it became a public outcry, um, and then he resigned. Cultural appropriation and erasure among Native Americans, Polynesians, etc., lobbying against church clergy, being mandatory reporters. That was also talked about in that episode, uh, that they kept using that as an excuse uh, not to uh, share with the rest of the ward what that bishop had done. And then attempt to make a make Utah a two-party recording consta- consent state. Sorry. Yeah. I just want to add one thing, actually, about the, um, the men that were part of the U.S., the, the torture program. There was actually a a woman i need to find her name because i really actually want to do a lot more research about her but she was lds she was actually on the ground over there and was supposed to implement these tactics um but she refused to do it and i'm guessing the situation was not one where you could easily just refuse to do it Uh, she ended up committing suicide rather than implement these techniques and so that's somebody that i want to like find a lot more about 
anyway, I just wanted to point that out. And then I've got to stop here and just explain. We've gone through essentially all the categories. There's still a couple more, but there you have to kind of have a little break here, which is to recognize that as we went through each one of these uh, arenas of issues, uh, every facet of Mormonism's truth claims when dealt with logically are in favor of the critic. That when understood collectively, the only fallback Mormonism has is spiritual testimony, right? How many times have you presented somebody with what you perceive as the deep problems of the church and all they, you know, they say something like, well, all I know is the church is true. Got to have faith, brother. Lord will figure it out on the other side. Well, I don't know about that, but I've prayed about it. And so what Mormons do, believers do, is they always use the Holy Ghost as a trump card. No matter what issues you bring forward, no matter how messy it gets, no matter how many problems there are, the Holy Ghost takes care of all of that, except for the fact <clears throat> that the Holy Ghost is a problem himself. Uh, Jonathan Haidt's study of elevation emotions shows that the exact same feelings that we claim are the Holy Ghost, a burning in the bosom, feelings of peace, uh, a, a desire to want to do good in the world and to help people out. These are all things that all humans feel, and you can be manipulated into feeling them uh, in moments where something good isn't happening. You can have actors pretending to do something good and your ignorance about what is happening in that moment has you feeling elevation emotion. There is the illusory truth effect, which matches what President Packer said, uh, that, that testimonies gained in the bearing of it. If you repeat things enough times, your brain will believe that thing over factual information when the facts are shared with you. If you, Please. Bill, I just want to point out that there's a comment up here that uh, Colby Reddish is apparently watching the show and said yes. thanks for the shout out. I want to thank him publicly for his bravery, for the bravery of his wife, for calling the state president on his behavior and pursuing that. And also for that other couple in the ward, uh, and I can't remember their names, I apologize, but uh, what great bravery for you to do and all the backlash you got from the faithful members of the ward over your standing up to this abuse of power and trying to sweep this bishop's conduct under the rug at the expense of how many other victims might there be out there among the children in the ward. Agreed. The, that was the one of the saddest parts of the episode was uh, to read the emails from faithful members. Yeah. The church seems to really not have a problem covering up and hiding abuse, does it? No, and ironically, the church actually inculcated the correct principles and values in the reddishes and in this other couple, and then they used those principles in order to call the church out on its bad behavior. And bad behavior is an understatement. Yeah. Um, another problem with the Holy Ghost is when you take seriously the spiritual experiences of those outside your faith. Remember Quaku and Cardinalis and those guys made fun of my argument saying, oh, come on, Bill, we know that all men, you know, all people across the world feel the Holy Ghost. Well, as we talked about in that episode about straw men, the reality is when people have contradictory beliefs that they got from their spiritual experiences, which come with the same magnitude and certainty that yours did, why do you get to dismiss theirs and you get to trust that yours came from God? And that whole thing begins to kind of mess up your certainty that the Holy Ghost is a way to know truth. Uh, how dead wrong past leaders were in spite of their knowing. Remember, living prophets trump dead prophets. How wrong members have been at past times holding their views with certainty when such views have been abandoned or disavowed. The easy example is the Adam-God doctrine. 
Brigham Young said he knew by the spirit that those teachings were true. He said that the members of the church also knew by the spirit those teachings were true, only to have Bruce R. McConkie, Spencer W. Kimball, Marky e. Peterson, and others throw that belief under the bus and say that Brigham Young essentially had taught false doctrine and was wrong. Um, the Holy Ghost can be tested, and it does no better than no Holy Ghost. So, for instance, whether it's priesthood blessings, whether it's praying about knowing an answer to something, if we get 100 random people, and let's let 50 of them be faithful, believing members of the church who believe they have the Holy Ghost, and we could put tests out there and have them answer uh, certain kinds of tests, have them try to perceive who needs help simply by looking at people, and they would have no more statistical advantage than the people who are atheist or don't or don't claim to have the Holy Ghost. Um, there isn't any testable difference. Uh, leaders can have, and uh, even in the present moment, seem to have some level of being deceived. Members have been deceived. The Holy Ghost is essentially ineffective. Um, and it can be, it is testable. If somebody wants to do the test, I'm happy to, I'll put some money in and back that up. Um, so long as when it comes out, and I'm talking about believers, so long as when it comes out that I'm right, that I get paid back what I put in. Um, yeah, and I would say that uh, for tonight's show, the Holy Ghost is especially ineffective at spelling. Oh, <laughs> look at that. Sorry. Yeah, look at that, my friend. Um, I didn't catch it earlier either. That's okay. I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not very good at grammar sometimes. So then once we get through that, we think, okay, it's it. Mormonism has been decimated. And I don't mean any offense to the rest of the folks who stayed in Christianity, but another uh, table leg that Mormonism hinges on is that Jesus was real as well. And so we also need to at least mention the historical Jesus, uh, the dating of New Testament authors, wrestling with New Testament gospel contradictions. Again, we try to make the attempt, you've mentioned this, RFM, we try to make the attempt to make those four gospels coincide with each other and run smoothly. The reality is they simply don't. Um, once we know how myths are created, if anybody wants to go read Sapiens by Yuval Harari, uh, how stories easily get embellished, notice that in an age of verifiable history, Mormonism was able to do so much embellishment and create so many false faith-promoting stories. If we go back to the day of Jesus, when it is a unverifiable history, there aren't, there isn't journalism, there aren't critical witness statements uh, addressing the same stories and issues. There aren't other witnesses speaking up and saying like, hey, that's not the way it happened. We just, it just was a time where we don't have verifiable history. How much easier would it have been to create myths, to embellish stories, to create false stories and implement them into a narrative it would have been much easier. Yes, Notice when... Have, I was just going to say, we don't have FAA records to compare against the accounts of Jesus's ascension. We don't, yeah. And it almost, you know, once you understand how the world works, it becomes essentially absurd that this guy was half God, he walked on water, he turned water into wine, and he rose on the third day after being crucified. That that becomes less rational. That's, that's Bill, a less rational Bill, conclusion. Bill, he was not half God and half man. He was fully God and fully man. Gotcha. I'm sorry about that. My I friend. had someone make that exact correction to me on my mission. And I never really? Forgot. Yeah. I know. It's like, we're going to take something that's at least conceptually possible and make it something that's conceptually inconceivable. Yeah. And one thing um, if I want to uh, add to this one, I, it's amazing to me now how much the idea of 
sacrificing a son for the sins of other people. I didn't know what's presented. And I thought that that made sense and that that was okay. Um, but when you think about it, <laughs> it, it's really not remotely fair or it, it, it justifiable in any way. So that was another thing that I, along with a, like Abraham and Isaac, which is supposed to be, you know, a type of, um, you know, for Jesus Christ, that, that that's an okay story at all. Yeah, completely. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If God can come up with all those things to accomplish the logistics of salvation, seems like he could have done it some other way too, huh? Uh, notice... The strange thing there, uh, Maven, is that in the Doctrine and Covenants, God commands us to forgive all men. Remember that part? He says, I am God, I'll forgive who I want to forgive. But right. if you is required to forgive all men, which strangely, when you take it into the Christology that we have uh, inherited, I'll say, or restored perhaps, what it ends up meaning is that we as human beings have a power that God does not have because I can forgive Bill without sacrificing my son or anybody for that matter. Yeah. God apparently cannot. Yeah. Look at that. All powerful. And it's, it's the most loving thing ever. I mean, and that's the scripture that everyone wants to quote. God so loved the world that he was willing to murder his son for you. John but 3, 16. I mean, imagine like a spouse or a partner. Imagine somebody doing something like that. And there have been people who have done that, but you see them on 2020, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't just murder his perfect son. He murders women and children in the great flood. He, he allows genocide at multiple places in the old Testament. He, when, when a man rapes a woman, if the man pays the father a certain price, he gets to marry his sexual abuse victim, right? Like, like God seems to be pretty okay with lots of things that I'm not okay with. And so God's morality is somewhat problematic. And um, if there were people around and she didn't yell, then it's not rape and she's also accountable. But yeah. if there's no one around, then then you can give her some, some benefit of the doubt. Yeah, yeah. Um, notice when supernatural happens and when it doesn't, it almost never happens when there's an iPhone out recording. Notice whenever there's alien ships going by, how far away they are. Notice whenever people get footage of Bigfoot, it generally is super far away and Bigfoot seems to look like a guy dressed up, you know. I'm telling Jeffrey Meldrum you said that. <laughs> Please do. Um, and then issues with the nativity narrative. You and I covered that this past Christmas. Yeah. And so once you go through all of these facets, I'll put the last slide up and we'll come to a close. When you come up with uh, all of these facets, you realize like every one of those has a thousand problems in them. And, and I don't think I'm underestimating. I think if you really took Mormonism and you said, let's write down every single thing that doesn't add up, you would have thousands and thousands of things. And so here you have like 13 different categories. Maybe there's 12 other, 12 or 13 different categories. And each one of them, the church needs every one of these things to add up, or it is either unhealthy or it is not true. It's either not true or it's not good. And, and you have to have every one of these things add up or you have serious flaws with, with the way it's ran, who's running it, and the truth claims it makes, which are hinging upon historical events, which we have historical data to examine. And, and people can go, well, like, hey, maybe on this one it works out. And maybe on that one it works out. But the reality is you can't make a thousand issues that are in the critic's favor all go towards the believer and 
feel like that's fair and appropriate. And that kind of helps us with our conclusion that the church is true. And the critic doesn't need very many of these to go their way for the church not to be true. And the church needs almost all of them to go their way for the church to be true. And, and so the odds are just stacked against it. So I want to finish by saying this, which is often people get into this um, way of arguing where they say that you can't prove the church isn't true. And there's some truth to that. Like there isn't an absolute nail in the coffin. But if you step back, RF, you, you kind of know this from being a lawyer, there's very few instances where you can absolutely prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that something happened or didn't happen or is or isn't. The reality is we're all having to step into the darkness a little bit and our rational minds have to pick the things that are most logical, most rational, require the least amount of allowances, the least amount of conjecture. It's why in like a civil court case, it's, um, what's the actual term they use for how you prove guilt or innocence? Well, it's not guilt or innocence in a civil case, but it's preponderance of the evidence, 51%. Yeah. And and isn't there, isn't there another phrase used in that same, um, uh, you, you just have to convince to a certain degree, right? Like it's not, you don't, you can't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. You're trying to prove it to a no, there's in a criminal case, it's a higher burden of proof that the prosecutor bears, which is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt, which still isn't a nail in a coffin, right? It's still not 100%. There's still some room, some wiggle room there. And the church plays on that wiggle room all the time, and its apologists play on that wiggle room all the time. The preponderance of evidence is by and far in the critic's favor. And so for each of you who have left, you don't have to explain to your, your family, you don't have to justify it. Like it's already laid out there. Like the information's there and it's in the critic's favor. And so uh, for folks who are believers, when you say, why did somebody leave? They must've been lazy. They must've wanted to sin. They, they just must not have enough faith. The reality is they're just being rational, logical, critical thinking human beings. And they went with where the evidence is. I was talking... Oh, great summation. Maven, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, I wanted to jump in because I, I'm just kind of having like um, a TBM memory kind of kind of filter through. I feel like on some level, as believers, we did know this. Uh, you know, sometimes we were aware of it, especially when talking about or talking to people who had left, because how it's pretty common to hear people say one of the reasons like not to engage with us is because, oh, if we answer one question, they'll just have a, you know, something else. So it's just, it's not worth talking to us because we're not really interested in the answer and we've got a list. And and now I, that I remember that I, I really thinking, yeah, it's true. There's, there's just no end to the stuff they complain about <laughs> that. It just never clicked. The rabbit hole goes forever. Doesn't yeah. it? There's yeah. a good reason for that. Yeah. It would, I would have to be irrational to continue believing in the church and the Holy ghost it's on its own ineffective and insufficient. And when matched up against all of these problems, it's ineffective and insufficient. The rational mind has to come to the conclusion that the church is not what it claims to be. And that these leaders on some level are dishonest and that there isn't the supernatural God magic going on that we all thought there was. Yeah. You know, this past week I was talking with, a friend of mine who is currently 
actually a BYU professor in the religion department. Other than that, I cannot say his or her name. I'll just refer to this person as a he. And I was mentioning what you were working up for this program tonight, Bill. And I said, isn't there, I, it was like I was saying, for Mike's sake, or for the love of Mike, for the love of Mike, can't we just have one foundational miracle story in Mormonism that is not intensely problematic? Not a single one. And this professor said, I know what you're talking about. I've tried. Every single truth claim we make, the data seems to be in favor of the critic. Yeah. And we're supposed to just believe anyway. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? All right. So let me put up, uh, I should have done this a little earlier. So if somebody wants to hurry up, jump in and call, we've got the call screener running. Um, it is amazing, right? Like believers, they don't really know all of this stuff. Most of them don't. But there are people out there who know this stuff and they still believe anyway. Um, and maybe to some degree, we were those people at one point, right? But but there also comes a point where you and I, and um, maybe I don't know as much of your story of like when you dug into it or whatnot, but there comes a point where you read more and you realize like, oh, there's more to the book of Abraham than I thought. There's more to... Book of Mormon anachronisms. There's more to 19th century material. There's more to plagiarism from Adam Clark's commentary. And it it taking the faithful answer is just no longer satisfactory. And yet somehow there are people out there who I think know this stuff as well as us, and they just don't have a problem with it, do they? It seems no, let weird. Me give you, let me give you an example of this. Um, Carrie Muelstein was on a recent podcast where he was um, promoting his new book about the book of Abraham. And there was something that I wanted to say only because he was giving his usual trope about how everybody has uh, biases when they come at a subject. And those who want the book of Abraham to be true, they're going to see it the way he sees it. And if you don't believe the book of Abraham is true, then you're going to have this predisposition, predisposition to look at the other evidence, right? And I wanted to get my voice in there just to make a comment, which was um, that I personally wanted the book of Abraham to be true so much that I studied hundreds and hundreds of pages of apologetic material on it. And I marked up my scriptures. I did all this stuff. I mean, I got all of Hugh Nibley's articles from the Improvement Era, Three Hole Punched Them, put them in a big binder. This was not all in the comment, but I just wanted to make it clear that no, when I found out the book of Abraham is not ancient, and it's actually a 19th century production. It wasn't because I came at it from that point of view, wanting it to be that. I wanted more than anything for it to be ancient and authentic. And so the evidence convinced me that regardless of what I wanted it to be, it actually was not what I wanted it to be. So I managed to squeeze all of that down into like two sentences in this comment on, on the YouTube video. And one of the other listeners immediately commented back to me and said, have you prayed about it? Yeah. And I, I did a little blip where it ended the call in studio call. So I just reinitiated it. It's going to take probably a minute for another call to come in. What do you, what do you think it is? Like if we sat down with, if we sat down with John Lynch or we sat down with uh, Scott Gordon 
And if, and if they're in, and we've done this, you know, I've done this with Jim Bennett, right? I've had 14 hours of conversation. John DeLynn's talked to him for another 14 hours. Those guys don't seem to quite comprehend how much it's stacked against them. They don't really seem to realize they kind of, we all kind of grew up in this space where you thought like, oh, there's some things against the church. There's some things for, it's kind of hard to figure out. So I'm, I know I have a spiritual experience, so I know it's true. And it seems like when you really take a step back in that 30,000 foot view and you look at the church collectively, it's monumental how far in favor of the critic it is. And those guys seem to not really get how much against their side the data really is. Yeah, it's hard. I, I really, really took it in really, really well that... I can't trust my own thoughts and feelings. So no matter how bad it was really starting to look for a while, I, I just still really felt that the church was true. So there were prophets and apostles that spoke to God and that the devil was really, really good at convincing people. And so, yeah, that was part of it for me. It was just being so scared to be wrong. Mm. Yeah. And I would add that it's really hard to see something that you refuse to allow yourself to look at. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've got some callers, so let me uh, let me see if I can. Um, sorry, I because I was putting it on this week, I kind of wasn't putting my brain over here. I cannot do two things at once, unfortunately. So let's see if this works. Okay. While you're doing that, I will. Uh, mention along the same lines, Daredevil's favorite quote, none is so blind as he who will not see. Blind as he who will not see. Yeah. Uh, Trevor is on the line. Trevor, you are on Mormonism Live. Are you there? Yes, I'm here. Perfect. Uh, what do you um, got for us tonight, my friend? I just, well, I just wanted to say uh, I was a true lazy learner because I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, but I left the church for different reasons. Um, but I was watching your guys' three-part series about the Book of Abraham the other night. And it's fantastic. Um, but what I thought of, and I wanted to share this with you, it's interesting that the church um, comes up with these uh, positions that they have on all the issues. But what I find interesting about that, it never comes from the prophet. It's coming from apologetics and apologists throughout the church. But it's never coming from the top down. And if these men are indeed uh, getting revelation from God, why aren't they saying it instead of the apologetics? Yeah. We have prophets, seers, and revelators who were lucky to listen to two or three times a year. Right. Yeah. Doesn't make sense, does it? No, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, Trevor, you know, this is something no across. Oh, thank you, Trevor. By the way, that was something that crossed my mind. Remember back when Tom Phillips was suing the LDS Church and Thomas Monson in the English courts? Yeah. And it was kind of a, a buzz in the news, you know, as much as anything like that would be. It was a little bit sensational. And the church lawyer sprang into action trying to, um, get it dismissed, which they were successful in doing. 
because he had subpoenaed Thomas Monson to come to court to testify. And they leapt into action to get the subpoena quashed. Thomas Monson actually never appeared in court. The case was dismissed. But it occurred to me during this time period, what is Thomas Monson doing as a prophet when if he wants to preach the gospel and he's the prophet of Jesus's church, what better forum would he have than to respond to the subpoena, go to the court with cameras running worldwide, take the stand and preach the gospel and what the truth really is. And the fact that he decided to instead hide behind a phalanx or phalanx of lawyers, to me, did not indicate much of a prophetic mantle on his part. He was busy eating a root beer float and watching What About Bob? (laughs) (laughs) Baby steps down the street. Baby steps, yeah. Look at that. I'm sailing. (laughs) All right, I'm... Um, I mean, with the whole Hoffman case and issue, um, the church also was being extremely difficult about cooperating with the investigation. Um, and so my understanding is because they were trying to do everything possible in their power not to have to um, be made to <laughs> testify of anything under oath. And I just think that's really telling now that when like the last thing the last thing the prophets and apostles want to do is be under oath in a court of law. That that played out once before and it didn't go well. Right. Yeah. And they, they know it won't. Yeah. So yeah. Joseph F. Smith, I believe. Yeah. There's um, legal consequences for those, for what they're going to say. They don't want to be there. They want nothing to do with it. Yeah. When you don't control the questions and you're under oath, things can get a little sticky. They're bashful prophets. Yeah. Not quite like Abinadi, are they? No, because that would have been Abinadi. Thomas Monson, get over there, take the stand, preach the gospel. This is your moment. This is what you were born for. Yeah. Well, as someone put. We have Katie on the line. Katie, you are on Mormonism Live. What do you have for us tonight? Yes. Hi. I actually just wanted to back Maven up. Um, I have here, if you're interested, uh, the source that she had mentioned, Wilfred Woodruff being sealed to several hundred or over a hundred women on one of his birthdays. I would love to share the source and just read a little snippet from his journal if you're interested. Happy birthday to Wilfred Woodruff. Yeah, please read it. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's recorded um, from his journal, but in a book called The Mysteries of Godliness, A History of Mormon Temple Worship. This is just a little excerpt from it. Um, It says, let's see, um, accordingly on the 1st of March, 1877, in celebration of his 70th birthday, Woodruff was accompanied by 154 women to attend a special event at the St. George Temple to perform proxy endowments for deceased women who had been or would be sealed to Woodruff as plural wives. Of this occasion, he writes in his journal, I was there surrounded with 154 virgins, maidens, daughters, and mothers in Zion from the age of 14 to the aged mother, leaning upon her staff, all had assembled for the purpose of entering into the temple of the Lord to make me a birthday present by being washed and anointed and receiving their endowments for and in behalf of one of my wives who were dead and in the spirit world, the majority of which had been sealed to me. When they had all assembled together in the creation room, I presented myself before them clothed in the white doe skin temple dress. I there delivered unto them a short address. You are today in this endowment without a man with you, but we shall furnish one man in an atom. I went through the endowments of the day more like being in vision than a reality. There are 154 sisters were led to three veils and three of us all dressed in temple clothing 
took them all through the three veils. President Young was present at the temple and witnessing the ceremonies. At the close of the labor at the temple, I was placed in the midst of a surprise party, got up for the occasion. The room decorated and the table set, loaded with all the luxuries of life, surrounded by nearly 100 of those who'd been receiving endowments for my dead during the day. President Young sat at the head of the table, surrounded by his family, and after blessing was asked, there was presented before me a present of a birthday bridal cake, three stories high, adorned with the beasts of the field from the elephant down, and ornamented with two satin sheets covered with printed poetry composed for the occasion. So that's it. Others, I think there's even maybe a little more further on, but I think that's probably what Maven was referencing, which was certainly shocking uh, for me to read, just when I thought there couldn't be any more strange things to learn about in church history. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, there, there are thousands of issues in this rabbit hole. It's the a way good thing right. they didn't about it was someone pointing out that for a long time it was actually visible and seeable. Um, in like if you go, what is it? Is Ancestry, where you can look up, you know, your yeah, family, family search, family search. Yeah. yeah, those were there, but they've started to be cleaned up. So the records are still there, but there's a line underneath them that says GA cleanup or something like that. And these are women that have been taken off uh, from Wilford Woodruff's name. That's my understanding. But it was his birthday present. How dare they? It sounded like a very lovely birthday. For sure. Great cake and all, huh? It's a good thing they didn't have TikTok back then. <laughs> thank you, Katie. Yep, thank you. All right. Uh, we've got uh, Andrew on the phone. Andrew, you're on Mormonism Live. Hey, Bill um, and RFM and Maven. I was just calling in to say... Um, you know, sort of what you guys are talking about with, you know, the, the, the prophets or the leaders being brought into court and trying to defend the church or whatever. Um, it's always easier to defend a position when you have the truth on your side. Like it's always easier to defend the actual truth of whatever actually happened than it is to make up some story that is still somehow logically consistent. And I think um, it's also part of why RFM was able to so easily, you know, trounce these three guys on the stage in that debate. It was just like, they were sitting here trying to justify something that is simply not true. Whereas, you know, all, all the RFM had to do was just state the facts. Right. Yeah. So that's all I really wanted to say. Thanks Thank for everything. guys. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Andrew. I just want to say um, I made it look easier than it was. The great ones do make it look easy, but thank you. <laughs> thank you just the same. He does make the point, though, right? Like two people of equal skill and intelligence, if one side has the truth on their side, it's it's just not going to be a fair fight. Well, this is what your boss, Chris, used to talk to you about. said, how is it a guy who used, who's never graduated from college, uh, worked in a carpet store, and now yeah. in a pawn shop, in yeah. a small town in Utah, uh, and you put you up against the University of Chicago Law School educated, Dallin H. Oaks, and all the things that he's done that he pretty much repeats every time he's going to talk or somebody else repeat for him all of his curriculum vitae, and how incredibly brilliant and knowledgeable and expert he is in all things argumentative. How is it that you could clean his clock in a one-on-one -on -one with him? Yeah, because And truth... your response to him was what? Yeah, just once you have the truth on your side, it's just not a fair fight. Um, I'm fighting with an unfair dis or an unfair advantage. It's an unfair advantage to to be able to think logically about all these issues, and someone else is trying to defend it un indefensible. Yeah. 
All right, we've got uh, one more caller, and then we'll wrap up here. James, you are our last call for the night. You're on Mormonism Live with Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real and Maven. Are you there, James? Hello, is that me? That's you, my friend. Yes, I am. Hi, Take us home. Hey, um, great. I'm calling from Serbia, where it's almost uh, 4 o'clock in the morning here. I uh, just wanted to tell you, first of all, I really appreciate your shows. They're fantastic. Um, I, uh, I happened to serve my mission in Yugoslavia back during the Cold War in a non-mission that never appeared, really, but was actually a mission for the church. The reason I'm calling is because in listening to your shows, listening to how you talk about the church and the way it uh, directs people toward authorized sources and toward authorized leaders and authorized officials and how you may not read outside the lines, how you may not color outside the lines, and how in no way are you supposed to question the authority. It reminds me a great deal of communism. I say this because I've lived in a number of communist countries. I studied in the Soviet Union before the Berlin Wall came down. I lived in Yugoslavia. I visited East Germany. I visited Hungary. Um, I'm, I've been living in post-communist countries now for the last uh, 30 years uh, due to my work. And I think at some point it would be fantastic if you could put together a show comparing the similarities between how the Mormon church attempts to control thought, knowledge acquisition, learning, and behavior, and uh, how that uh, looks in comparison to the communism that came under uh, Lenin, the Soviet Union, and was in place before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that's all I wanted to say, um, but you guys just keep doing what you're doing. It's great. Um, it's, it's a great aid to learning, and uh, thank you very much. Yeah, it is all state-run media inside Mormonism, isn't it? Yeah, it yeah. really is. It yeah. really is. And 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 you know, I I went on a mission. I was in the MTC at the same time RFM was, so uh, we're from that generation. And um, I think we're all very experienced. We read about it. For those of us who actually went behind the Iron Curtain, I was behind the Iron Curtain on my mission, and uh, I got to live under that for two years. And it was uh, it. it it was a very easy transition <laughs> growing up in a good, uh, a good uh, LDS home with uh, believing family members and parents. Um, I had no difficulty living under communism. Yeah. So James, I, I might have for you. Um, so I'm wondering, I don't know if you can email the show just so I can, I can get in contact with you after, or if we're friends on Facebook or something. Yeah, James, would you? Um, I can send a message to RFM on Facebook. Uh, I would point out there are some uh, there are some other uh, interesting LDS people who have been on missions behind the Iron Curtain. The famous uh, musician Kurt Bester, for example. For those of you who were in the on the Wasatch Front, you all know him in his famous Christmas shows every year. There was a small cohort of um, approximately fourteen missionaries who were sent into Yugoslavia back in the late seventies and early eighties. And uh, we were also operating up in Hungary, and uh, there were some very interesting tales to be told. But yeah, I'll drop you a line on Facebook. Thank you. Yeah, this is a point of curiosity for me, for sure. Thank you. Sure, sure. Okay, y'all keep up the good work. Thank you, James. You know, Bill, it was only as recently as one week ago, maybe a little bit more, when Elder Razband was giving the devotional address at Brigham Young University, Idaho. And all the brethren know that they can't. Did you hear that noise? Yeah, that's me ending the call, the call studio. Sorry. Okay, I was concerned it was the early warning system. No, no, I know. <laughs> but uh, no, he, they know they can't come out and say, don't look at this stuff, right? 
they can't put it in those terms because they know, yeah, even they know that would sound bad. <laughs> that would sound kind of desperate. But he gives the same message. And what he said was, if you have doubts or questions about the church, who are you going to ask? The Lord's prophets or the Internet? Yeah, I'd go with the Internet. But yeah, that's not where they want you to go, is it? Yeah, I thought he was going to say, who are you going to call? But he didn't. At least the Internet doesn't avoid my questions or change them. <laughs> well, what, remember, folks. From RFM, the, the who, do you gonna, who are you going to believe, me or, or your lying eyes? Exactly. Yeah. From Groucho Marx, of course. There you go. But yeah. yeah. So if there's anybody watching still and you're still, you still have a testimony and you still believe, it's, it's probably because you've been able to. Doubt your doubts. Doubt your doubts.